Preparation for my new Easter outfit. That white suit. Woo! Wow. Talk about upstaging. Man, he is not allowed on stage anymore. Okay. I want to welcome you. I know some of you are here visiting and you're here to support your family or friends. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. And some of you probably had to drive a distance to be here. Um, I know you know how much it means to them, um, but I want to tell you what it means to us as a church, um, just that you uh, have, have um, shared with what we share with your family. And um, we, they're in our church family, and in some cases, in our care in a way. And I want to just ask um, that you just continue to pray for our church and pray for their time here, that they grow and they thrive and that these kiddos just connect and make friends, and some friends for a lifetime, but that they grow in their faith. And um, we just thank you for entrusting your family with us, and we will um, do everything we can to do right by that um, trust that you have. And so um, let's pray before we get into the message, and then we'll begin. God, we thank you so much for just experiencing what it means to be a family. And God, that we come from different backgrounds, different places, we have different experiences, and but God, that you have brought us into under one banner, and that's under you, Christ. That we're here today, um, people who wouldn't maybe not even have known each other, but growing as a family under your banner. And God, there's a great privilege to be a church and to be a part of your church. God, that you, um, Jesus, you are leading the church. You are the head of our church. I ask that you continue to lead us in that way. And exactly what is in this book of Hebrews, we're studying what the writer is asking them to do as well. And God, I just thank you for that. We love you and we give you all glory, all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man. Well, first and foremost, I have to say thank you for everybody who came and did our work day yesterday. Um, I did get uh, a sunburn. I haven't been in the sun in months, and, uh, and I uh, did almost die a few times, but boy, oh boy, we got the work done. Did we not? Yeah. And so uh, you, you, just, you just may not realize, like, uh, you know, some, I've worked for a lot of churches where um, you just said, you put in a request, and somebody at the church, it's these large churches, and something happened, and it's like, oh, they took care of that. They took care of that. We just put the request in, and and the team took care of it that's hired. Um, we, we are not that church. <laughs> we, uh, we are a church that, and I love it, by the way, um, being in both places and nothing against one or the other, but I've found the true joy of joining together as a church to accomplish something together. We may not be the best at it. We may not be experts. We don't know how to perfectly take down trees, and someone did me, almost died, but so what? We accomplished it. Chad had a sermon ready to go, so we, <laughs> we were good. But it, it really is something I just looked back, and I was watching everybody working and, and, and seeing, this is our church. This is our church. It's not Ryan's church. It's not the elders' church. This is not Chad's or the staff's. This is our church. And I, I love seeing that. And I think that's just the hallmark of what our church has been since we founded is that it's a church that takes many of us to lift it. But if we lift it together, you know, great work can be done. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, I have to ask this question. Maybe you were like this. <clears throat> and maybe in light of baby dedication, 
and maybe this lead-in analogy might fit for the sermon, is do you remember when you were a kid? I know, Larry. It was... Uh, Larry, it was a long time ago. But you're going to have to go deep. And if you're... If you remember when you were a child and you, you, you messed up, you knew that what you did was going to have a consequence, or you knew what you did was uh, going to be disapproved uh, by your parents. Do you remember when you were a kid, the rational thinking that you had, it, it, that what you did to think that you were going to avoid that moment. What you did to soothe yourself. That, do you know what you did? I know what I did. <clears throat> I thought if I disappear, it, nothing ever happened. <laughs> if you disappear, if I hide, no one is going to want to know. It will just go away. But I remember the feeling and I remember thinking so many things like, who can I blame this on? Okay, my younger brother, he, he, he does, you know, doesn't do wise things. So he definitely, I can, you know, you always blame it on the youngest. Sorry to you, youngest. And I just remember just thinking so many things. I just didn't want to face the disappointment or even maybe the consequences of that mistake. It, it was difficult. I know that if my kids feel the same way, and all they're thinking is, I cannot face my parents, and so I just want to hide from my parents. If I just, I cannot look them in the face because they're going to see me, and then if they see the guilt on my face, I cannot face my parents. I would, and you as parents know this, you would never want your kid to sit in that, would you? You would want them to just go, let's, let's take this burden off of you. There are people who literally, they feel they've done something to someone so wrong, it's even difficult to be in the same room because of what they feel and the shame. But I guarantee the person wouldn't want you carrying that burden around, yet we do it. I think in a way, this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Now we're in chapter 7, and if you haven't been here, it's okay. You don't, you don't need to have been through the last sermon series to get what the writer's saying today. He's, he is saying, why do you hide from God? Why do you, why cannot you look him in the face? Why do you not confidently draw near to him? What's holding you back? Why are you pushing God away? What are you afraid of? I think these are relevant questions for us. I titled this message, which is a phrase in this chapter called Draw Near. And if there's one thing you could walk out with, if there's one thing the writer is saying, if there's one thing that he, he wants his readers to hear, is instead of running, draw near. The instinct is to run. The instinct is to hide when you've messed up. The instinct is to pull back when things are difficult. The instinct is to not trust when you need to trust more. And he's saying, draw near. And so if there's one thing that I want to communicate as far as how or what I would hope would happen in today's message is that we find confidence in our true salvation. You will not find it somewhere else. 
You will not find it in another practice. You will not find it in some ritual we do. You will not find it there. And the writer is saying, you will not find it. So stop running there. And you will not, you, you, you will not um, hide your sin from God by just hiding from God. You need to draw near to God. And I think he, you know, Chad was <clears throat> telling me about this. Uh, we were talking about like all people do after a really hard work day yesterday about Diet Coke, you know what I mean? But then we said to ourselves, we deserve one with sugar after that work. And so I did. I drank a Dr. Pepper and I didn't care. But we were talking about like Diet Coke because we had Diet Coke for people. And he was like, you know, the thing about this, you know, this, you know, the sweetener, he did like a study on it and did some research. And he said, there's an interesting thing that happens when you have artificial sweetener and it is so much more sweeter than just regular sugar that it, in your brain, it's telling your brain to produce a lot of insulin because it thinks it's taking in a lot of glucose. And so at the end of that, you're producing heavy on one end and not really getting much of the other. And so the idea is that if I drink this, then this will take care of my sugar craving. And listen, I see the evil look in your eyes, some of you Diet Coke drinkers, just stop. I know this is more offensive than talking about sin, but listen, it, what it does though, and I have no leaning one way or the other on this, because I do love artificial sweeteners as well, um, is, it is telling your body by producing this insulin, it needs its balance, which is like, where's all the glucose? Where's the good stuff? Where's the yum yums? Right, And so your brain is thinking, oh, I, I need that. I want it. So actually, in some cases, it actually makes you crave it even more, even though you're, not, you're, you're drinking less. And so you, at the end of the day, if you don't control that, you will just be like, oh, that's it. And, and then you know what I'm talking about. When you start binging, you're like, why did I eat all those Trader Joe's chocolate-covered pretzels? My favorite. Now, why did I binge the whole bag? I feel, right? I think in some weird way, this can relate to what the writer is poking at a little bit in people's hearts. You're searching for things, for fulfillment of something that will never make you full. But all it does, though, is you think you're getting full, but you're not getting full, and so you practice it more. You go to these useless, meaningless things thinking that it is atoning for your misbehavior, thinking that it will save you. And so you consume more and you consume more. And if you've ever been in a very unhealthy religious cycle of religious practices for the purpose thinking they will save you, it's called works-based salvation, you will then just have to do more and more and more. But you think it is saving you, but it actually is making you more unfulfilled and you're doing it more and more. And, and by the way, churches will give you endless practices to do, to just continue to think that if I do this enough, then God will love me. And it's kind of a little bit of a challenge he throws at them, and he's trying to loosen them from this grip because they're struggling with going back to these practices that they think will atone for them. They think that will save for them, even knowing the reality of Christ. They keep going back to the artificial sweetener. And is making them crave more and more, but they're unfulfilled. But Jesus fulfills fully, completely, unquestionably. And he's reminding them that stop going back to that. You have the real thing. 
I think he's alluding to this. And what he wants to do is he is telling them, you will never achieve this, leaving Christ for hopeless things in empty places. You will never, ever get what you think you're getting. And I think that what he does is he does, he, he has three main thoughts in chapter seven. I will not read the whole thing because it, it's, it's probably time's sake, but I think we don't need to. We need to just read a few verses that are alluding to what he's trying to say in here to loosen them from this unhealthy behavior, this walking around aimlessly unfulfilled. It started out, he actually says it really strong right here in this first part. Hebrews 7, verse 1 through 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it or on your app or it is on the screen. For this Melchizedek, now I'm going to explain this in a second when we get through it. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, meaning king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a high priest forever. Now, when you read that, there's a lot of things in there that are very coded and cryptic. There, you would have to really dig into this because at face value, you're like, what? Who's this Melchizedek? Who? You know, why am I talking about him? What, what is this about priests forever? What, what, what do you mean he didn't have parents, right? And so what is this slaughter of the kings? And so every time I read the Bible, I like to just, I like to kind of just go, okay, well, I don't understand what that means. Let's look into it a little bit more. What, is, what does that mean? I mean? And you can find those. If not, we can help you with those resources. But I want to kind of give you an idea. He is, in this three verses, describing a type of Jesus. And I'll break this down a little bit more as I explain a couple of things. But like he's describing a type. So Melchizedek is nothing more than a type of Jesus. He is not Jesus. This is not Jesus appearing in the Old Testament, as some people have taught. He is not. A, that's a Christophany. That's when you see Jesus actually showing up in the Old Testament. He is not that. He's a real person. He is not an analogy. He's not, a, 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 this is kind of like this. He, he is not that. He is real. And he's a king that existed. And he says the king of Salem. Salem, historically, is Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem as a king priest before Abraham. And if you know your biblical history, it's like Jerusalem doesn't come around the bend for quite a while. In Salem, the last part of Jerusalem, it means peace. And so we know this, that he was a king. So it's kind of unique. It's kind of odd. Ten generations after the flood, there's a king priest in Jerusalem. So that's kind of your timeline there. It says he's the most, he served the most high God. And, and I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I thought Abraham was the first person since the flood that God actually talked to. That someone who actually served God. I didn't know that there was another person out there. And so Melchizedek is a small figure in Genesis. It's a blip on the radar screen. But the writer decides to write about Melchizedek in the next three chapters. And so it's an interesting figure he's pulling out here. 
for a reason. Now, how Abraham met Melchizedek is what was called the slaughter of the kings. That's how he phrased it. What it really was was Abraham's nephew Lot, you know, the one who was in Sodom and Gomorrah, but before that, he was captured. His family was captured. And so Abraham leads a very small band of people, these like this militia, his, his SEAL Team 6, right? He gets these guys, and he's like, we're going to go back, and we're going to get Lot, and we're going to save him. And what he ends up doing is taking down a few great kingdoms that are just ravaging land. And so he's on his way back with everything that he has of lots that was taken and much, much, much more. And so the story is, as he meets, this king comes out to meet him as they're passing by Salem. And he is a king priest. And Abraham recognizes this, that he serves the God who is actually called Abraham. And so this situation happens where he goes before him and he gives him a tenth. Now, in the Bible, when someone blesses someone else or something is given as a portion to someone else, it's a greater, lesser relationship. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, is greater than Abraham. And this is why the writer picks this figure as a type. Because he is greater than Abraham, and from Abraham came all of the tribes of Israel. And so this figure, Abraham even tithes to, gives to, showing that he is greater. And they call him the king of righteousness. That's what his name means, Melchizedek, in translation. And the king of peace, meaning his city he is from, his peace. So it has all of this Christ type in it. And so he goes and pulls this figure out and says, listen, when you're thinking about Jesus, I want you to think about this. Because you're caught on something else, you got to think about a greater priest. I thought what was most interesting is he is without a father or mother or genealogy. And it's fascinating because I'm like, wait a minute, was this Jesus? And this is why people get way off on it. But the key word here is genealogy. Now, to be a priest from the time of Moses, right, and then the Levites and the tribes, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings, right? Aaron and all the priests then and after had to be from this tribe of the Levites, and so you could not be from the tribe of Judah and ever, ever be called to be a priest. It was only with a birthright. And so he says, Melchizedek was without genealogy. He didn't have a line. He was called by God outside of the line of priests. Because there was a problem within this community that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a high priest He's not a Levite. And he's saying, no, 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 you have this all wrong. You're working on a, a, a Levitical system here that's, that's not relevant here. He is like Melchizedek. He is beyond genealogy because he is from God. So what the Bible would, what theology would call this, and the word for it is, and I won't use many of these words, but this one in particular, he is a typology, Melchizedek is. He is a type of a shadow of, but just an idea to get a glimpse of what actually is a heaven reality. And so I'll read the definition of typology for you. It's in theology, the term typology. And you'll, you'll, after this, you'll be like, oh, I see lots of that happening throughout scripture. 
In theology, the term typology describes a study of, of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament through types of events that are seen to foreshadow the, give, the, the given historical meaning and events of the New Testament. This is why you see Jesus referencing uh, moments or situations. They are a typology of actually what has come. Um, and, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that. <clears throat> the 12 tribes of Judah. Jesus has 12 disciples. But the difference is, is Jude, Jesus is one of those tribes, right? But Jesus is in the place of what God was doing with the 12 tribes of Judah. He had the 12 tribes and God was leading them. Jesus has his 12 disciples as a typology, the 12 tribes of God is leading his disciples. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. And Luke 11 describes Jesus in the belly of the tomb for three days. The whale was a typology of what was to come. Moses, remember when he gets frustrated, he hits this rock because the people want water and, and, and their water is no good and the water flows out, living water in the desert. When he does that, he is called, that's a typology of Jesus being a life-giving spiritual rock that flows in dry places. Paul actually uses that typology in 1 Corinthians 10. Adam, the easiest one, the most famous one, Adam is a typology in, in, in Romans 5, Paul, Paul makes the connection of Adam, but Jesus is the second Adam. Adam is the human effort and event, real person, real time, real event. Jesus is actually heaven's fulfillment and the full bodiness of that foreshadowing of Adam. And so it makes these scriptural links and these connections. And this is why you can never just be a New Testament Christian. You have to be a Bible Christian because so many typologies are pointing to the New Testament, the fulfillment of that. It completes the story. And that's exactly what this writer is doing. Actually, in Romans 5, 14, I'll just quote it directly. And he's referencing Adam, who, Paul says, was a type of the one who was to come. So he's stating it out loud. He's a typology of that. These are real people, a typology, real events in the Old Testament, right? But they are earthly in their human, but it, they illuminate the reader, they connect the reader, and they point to the real from the copy, right? So you have heaven's reality invading earth, but you had this typology that was pointing that this is what somewhat what it will look like when it arrives. It's the best I can show you. But when it arrives, it will be from heaven. That is a typology. So that's why you'll hear Melchizedek in chapter 7. I would say just my conclusion about thinking about this first part of Melchizedek, because you're going to hear him throughout the next couple chapters. He was, why he uses Melchizedek as a typology is he was before the law, and they were constantly running to go and repractice the law that was not effective. It was not for them. They have a new covenant, but they were going back to their old ways. And he's saying, no, 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 no. If you think that's going to atone for your sins, let me just tell you that the, the Christ we serve is before all of the law. He was a priestly king. And he, 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 he had both the Levites 
and the tribe of Judah and all of the others within Abraham and blessed him. So all of it comes through ultimately from that moment. Melchizedek was not appointed from genealogy. We know that. He is greater than Abraham and he blessed him. Jesus is like Melchizedek, what he's saying, and much, much, much more. So he uses that as an example. The second thing he does is he describes Jesus' royal priesthood. And this is super important for them. And I know we might be like, priesthood, royal, we don't talk in these terms anymore. But oh, 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 it matters. It definitely matters. Because what he's not, he's using old language because that's what they use, phrasing. But the impact of the truth for you is exactly the same. I'll just read a few small verses here. Hebrews 7 16, this is how he talks about and describes the royal priesthood. Power, Jesus has, of an indestructible life. You have to let that sink in because what he's letting them see is that this, this reality of heaven is indestructible life. Unshakable life. That's who is your high priest. That's who is your representative. That's who's standing in atonement for you. Indestructible life. And that's what he has to offer you. Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost. Here we go. This is a phrase that if you ever find yourself in a place where it's like, God, how can you forgive me for this? How can you save me how, how, how can I get the past, and I'm currently in the present, how can you even future, I'm already saved? It's an interesting concept, this idea of saved to the uttermost, because that's what it means. It's, it means in the present context, in the past, and actually in the future, you have salvation. You have been atoned for. All priests who offered atonement in the Old Testament they offered atonement. It was temporary, and it was only for the past. And what he's stating here is that you're, you're, you're following something that's only for the past, and the next year you'll come again, and it'll be for what was then past. But Jesus comes at the utmost, the uttermost, and, and brings salvation to and forgiveness for your past, present in the future. I hope that gives you confidence. I hope that that, that that lets you walk a little taller. Not bold in your sin, but just knowing that that's the Christ and the God that you serve. And how would you want to respond to that God? The other thing I think is important is that the difference is that Jesus, how he's describing his royal priesthood, is Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. I know we don't talk about sacrifice in this way. We talk about it sacrifices for our country and people's lives. So the sacrifice is still in our language. But in this time for atonement, it was a blood offering. And, and, and what that blood offering was was temporal. It was not of heaven. And so why we can find confidence that Jesus can atone no matter what, it's indestructible, it's at its uttermost, is because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. It's not a 
copy of. It is the thing. And so it's eternal. And he lives forever. Why? Because of resurrection. All the priests died. Melchizedek died. Jesus rose. And this is what he has to offer us. And so we can trust in this. He atones for the past, the present, the future sins. And he is the high priest. And he offers that atonement forever and ever. And I think that has to build a confidence. That's what he's trying to build within them. And I know there's a lot of Christians who will walk around head heavy, even avoid going to church, avoid even talking to God because they think, how could God forgive me? I once was so involved. I once was so connected to God. Now I am distant. And how could God forgive me the way I am? I guess I'm lost again. You're wrong. Because the writer is telling them, you got to draw near, do not go. Just draw near. When you're feeling that way, draw near. Because you can absolutely draw near to God because of Christ. You could not do that before. The conclusion of that idea he's getting across is this. If you can walk away thinking, what is the royal high priest? Jesus is heaven's answer to the sin problem. And I think that we have to really fully understand that. He is the answer to sin's problem, right? It's unbreakable life with God. It's, it, it, it is, it is um, at the end of the day, unshakable grace. It cannot be moved. He is an answer, the answer to the sin problem. And it's unending righteousness before God, meaning that when you come before God, not like that child we were talking about earlier that would run and hide and afraid and just nervous and didn't want to feel, didn't want to present the disappointment, didn't want to see that, felt ashamed. We are called to go boldly before the throne. And he's telling them, you don't know what you have. And I, and I think every Christian needs to remember that. You don't, sometimes you forget what you have. You forget who Jesus is sometimes and what he has done and how you can approach God at any moment. I don't care how far gone you think you are. You can come and approach the throne because of his work and what he did. Definitely not what you have done. And the last thing, and, and then we'll start to go into our, our closing a little bit. I want to challenge you a little bit here. He describes the covenant that Jesus upholds. So he describes the type. He describes his royal priesthood and how we can be confident and secure in that. And then he describes the covenant that we uphold. Every time I marry a couple, I always say the same thing. I have them, and I'm like, you're entering into a covenant. And, and covenants are different than a contract. Covenants are ones that are, um, uh, uh, we, we biblically hold them a lot tighter we're both saying we're coming at this with the same trust. And we're going to trust and we're going to trust each other and we're going to hold to this covenant. And so he, Jesus brings a new covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Noah prior. God, God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with David. But this covenant is very, very different. And when we're talking about Jesus and why he's using eternal, forever, unshakable, unbreakable, is because now he's talking about a covenant that will not change. This is, this is what it will be like with God for the rest of our 
eternity and the way we live. And so let me read him real quick what he says. Verse 7, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 19, when he's talking about the covenant, and he describes it, it's a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is a covenant that invites us in to relationship with God, and it's better. Hebrews 7.22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And so you, could never have, you couldn't have a better representative than Jesus as representing you in this covenant. There's nothing better. Jesus upholds your end of the covenant deal in the agreement. And what you cannot do, he is doing for you. And when you feel like I need to do more in order to uphold my part of the covenant, you're, you're deceiving yourself. Jesus is standing there for you. You can do nothing. I always think of it this way. It, like, it, it'd be like us. Like if, if I'm lifting, I remember my son, I would lift something up and he would come up behind it and be like, Ugh, and he would actually think he was lifting something. And it was cute. And I was like, oh, look at him. He's trying to help. But I'm like, you're literally doing nothing. We think we're helping Jesus hold the covenant. But it's cute. It's cute. And God loves you so much, you'll be like, oh, that's really sweet. But like, literally, take your hands off that. <laughs> like, Jesus has and upholds the covenant. Other covenants were types of heaven's reality coming. They were a shadowing of what was great was to come. And, 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 and it, every other person who was dedicated to God prior to this would have and did and would have died for this covenant. And he's telling them, do not take this for granted. <laughs> do you know what Moses would have wanted, would have done for this covenant? Do you know what David would have done for this covenant? Why squander this? Why return to something? When God delivered actual reality of heaven to you, it's better, this covenant. It's trustworthy of our hope. It's hard, I know, to continue to put your hope in this belief and faith, but it's, it's your greatest hope. It's what you have as a guarantee. And it's the greatest, I think, that that God could do is he guaranteed it with his own signature on your end. So Christian, we cannot, and I never try to tell you guys what to do. You know this. If you've been here long, I'm not like, don't do this, but I have to. I'm very passionate about this part. I spent a lot of my years, unfortunately, thinking that I was going to earn favor with God by doing good things. But they, they were actually good practices that should have manifested from my absolute faith in Christ and confidence in him. But they were also biblical principles. But I was taking them and using them as if they were atoning my sin. Can anybody relate to this? They were actually helping me with my salvation. And if I keep doing these things good enough, then eventually it's like me as that kid just being like, okay, I'm helping you. And, and it's like, are you serious? Jesus, and, and this writer is trying to convey to them, stop doing that. It's a laboring in vain. You're wasting your time. What you need, and the one thing that raises a requirement of every Christian when it comes to 
of your, to, to, to your salvation is faith. You've got to have faith. You cannot work for it. You cannot. This is what he's trying to tell me. You cannot work for it. You cannot go back to these old ways. I know you want to leave. It's faith, faith alone. It cannot be based on you. I'll give you a concluding thought and then I have a question for you. Sin, I will say this. Sin is not your hindrance to God. I, I know that sounds weird because you're like, well, that's what we're supposed to talk about in church right here. Talk about all the sins. No, no. Sin is not your hindrance to God. Jesus has that. He absolutely has that. He destroyed sin. He defeated it. He's victorious over it. Sin is not your hindrance to God. So draw nearer. So many times we think that sin is, we can't draw near to God because of sin. But God's saying, actually, draw near to me in spite of it. And you will find healing and you will find rest. Sin is covered by Jesus if you are a believer. It's faith is what brings your salvation. And I think the thing is, is that, yes, sin is not your hindrance to God. So draw near to him, come closer to him. Do not run to useless religious acts that cannot save you. I, I said it, okay? You can hate me. Some people are very attached to these religious acts that, believe, that think that they actually are earning salvation. They're earning credit with God. And then one day when they stand before God and he goes through the list and he's like, oh, we're like uh, 5149, you're in. That, listen, you got to stop that. That is undoing the work of the cross. You have to stop that. Why we do good things, why we do our very best to follow Christ, is it's a manifestation of the confidence that we have that Jesus is upholding that covenant for you. And he is mediating for you in your sins. And he actually paid for them and has the bankroll, the ability to bankroll it. You do not. So what do you do? Go on sinning more with that great gift. Go on thinking that like, oh yeah, actually life was in all of that sin. I'm going to find that too because I'm covered here. If you do that, I'm sorry, you're a fool. You will waste your life and the potential God has for you. But if you rest in the fact that you're secure, and this is what he's wanting them to know, you're secure no matter what comes against you. You're secure. Don't go on seeking Life out in sin, it's like the sweetener. It's just nothing there. But you will continue to build an appetite that will be very detrimental to you. And so I think this, you have to remember this, like faith in Jesus is the only thing that saves. And I know we feel powerless like that. And they do too. No, 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 I got to do more. I got to do more. No, 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 no. I know you feel powerless. Like, and let, let me just put, swing it right to home. Have you ever had somebody give you a gift and you didn't plan on giving them a gift and then you got the gift and the gift became a curse to you? And you're just like, oh my gosh, they gave me a gift. I don't know what to do. I, I, now am I supposed to go get a gift? And then the gift becomes a nightmare. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, like, and they spent this much on the gift? Now I've got to do that? <laughs> I've got to look at my credit cards to get a gift. But the person, if they heard all that internal dialogue going on, it would be so heartbreaking for them because they're just like, I just wanted you to have the gift. But we feel so compelled that we must match it. Our pride, our arrogance, our ego, all says, no, 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 I can't let that happen. I've got to 
Did I make my point? Okay, I'm going to move on. Last question for you, and then we'll start to close. Uh, what does Melchizedek, or whatever his name is, what does, <laughs> what does priesthood, Levites, all that, what does that matter to you? I think that's hard sometimes as a reader of the Bible. Or I'm like, I don't even care about this stuff. And I'm being honest with you. Why do I need to know that stuff? That's so far gone. And, and temples and practices and sacrifices and priests and saviors. And th it, like, Ryan, we've moved on. We have the iPhone, okay? Like we don't have to deal with that language. Actually, I, a lot of people would say like, this is, sounds like it's a Hebrews problem. This is not a me problem, but this is where you'll miss everything if you just get lost in that language because you're missing the meat of what the writer is communicating, which translates to you. Because if God wrote this Bible through people, and he wrote this in, in you and mine now. So let's not get caught up and lost in the weeds here. Let's get the value. Let's get the meat of it. This is a, a, it's a, kind of one of those things like I think times, and tell me if you think I'm right, times and customs definitely have changed. Fashion has changed. But people and the human nature has not changed, has it not? Your, your human nature is no different at all from these people in this book at this time. You have more technology. Things have changed. Your languages have changed. You're from a different region. But, but your human nature is the same. And so he's speaking to the, the, the human nature of people and, and the temptation to continually go back to something that doesn't actually give you life. I'll, I'll give you an example. Culturally, I'm going to, uh, I'll just tell you this, and you can have your own thoughts about this, but I think culturally we have found new temples. Well, we don't do temples. That's weird. Actually, not really, because if you look at certain saving institutions, we will, we will consider them the new temple of our life culturally. What about priests? Oh, no, there's new priests. I don't know if you've noticed, but anyone who will be a savior in your life, you'll be like, that's my priest. I listen to what my priest says. I see him on YouTube every day. He's my priest. I give a sacrifice when I do a thumbs up and I subscribe. We found our new priest or someone in our life we can follow. We have new rituals of cleansing. So if you have done something culturally wrong or in the past, you will then have to go through purification rites. Oh, this is good. And so you have to Culturally purify yourself. I was wrong. I was a terrible person. And I'm not saying people shouldn't apologize. I'm saying there's a right of purification. Our culture is doing this and will always do this. How do you fit clean within our system? Okay, you are clean. We're, we're no different now. Human nature is the same. But, but, but what is different is our covenant with Christ for sure. To the human condition that literally changes everything. In Christianity, I'm not just going to pick on culture. In Christianity, I think that we are just like those Hebrews and we're struggling to, to fully trusting and resting. We're struggling for that. We're, 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 he has encouraged them, you need to fully trust and you need to fully rest like he's been talking about in the work of Christ. But, 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 then we fire up the old religious works. <laughs> 
we'd start doing these specific practices, certain chants, certain uh, phrasing, certain amount of reading the Bible. And oh, and, and now I go to church once uh, a month, and, and I'm going to get that to two times a month. And boy, oh boy, and I'm going to read my Bible every day. Uh, well, maybe not, but at least I'll read it sometimes. Do you get what I'm saying? But we have to evaluate why we're doing these things. Are we doing it out of the manifestation of the great reality? Or are we doing them to try to actually still atone? Because your works are in vain if you're doing that. I always say this. They, um, works did play a part in your salvation. But they did not come from you. They only came from one. Not you. And I know that's hard, but you have to really own that. Works did not come from you. They came from Jesus, and he did them. What we get to do is put our faith in the actual finished work that he did. So I will tell you this. Stop playing the games. Stop wasting your time. I would say stop laboring in vain, and stop looking inward for your salvation, but look upward. And this is what he is telling them. You have a great high priest. You have a new covenant. You, you have a rest in this. It's better. Why are you wasting your time trying to toil over things that will not bring you salvation? Find rest. Draw near instead. And I'll say this. If you have pride, lay it down. If it's sin that holds you back, repent. And if fear rises up, ask God to help you, just like Jesus did when he told Peter, you're going to go through a very difficult time, but I'm going to pray that you make it because I know when you're on the other side, it's going to be better. Jesus knew in faith what would happen. You have to pray if you're struggling, if fear is rising up, that Jesus is not enough for you. I'll close and we'll get into communion. Hebrews 12.1, we're going to read this much later. But he says something interesting I thought it would be good for us to hear. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. There couldn't be a greater statement for those who are struggling with putting their full confidence and trust and faith in Jesus. Lay aside all the weight. Run the race freely, not bound, and see what God has for you and is store for you. But rest easy that God has you and has done the work. So don't waste your time and energy into trying to do that. Use it for his good. Uh, we're going to take communion in a second. And, you know, our belief around communion is this is essentially what we talked about. This is a type of what really has come. So when we take communion or when we're baptizing, we, we don't believe that, that that is the moment of your salvation. It's a, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of actually what really happened in heaven, your spiritual reality. And so when we take communion, this is a foreshadowing of actually what really has happened. Jesus shed his blood for you. He died on the cross for you. And we all come to the table for this life, and we're celebrating what Jesus did, and we're honoring what he did, and he's saying, do this in remembrance of me, right? 
of my sacrifice and my blood. So you remember who you are in me and who we all are together in me. You, have all, you are all different. I am different from you. You have a different life, different experience. But this table is the great equalizer of all people who are in, we're in desperate need of salvation, but rest in Christ. And we can celebrate that in one, under one banner. Now, if, you, uh, if that's not your shared belief, that's okay. That's, just, that's not something you have to participate in. And um, so feel free and comfortable just, just to, to not have to come up. But if you feel, feel that shared belief that I just shared with you, um, then during worship, feel free to come up, grab your communion, and head back to your seats, and then just take that moment with God, whatever it is. If, if it is like, God, I'm, I have not been drawing near to you. I have been like that kid running. I'm hiding from you. I, I need to come to you, and I need to repent to you. If it's fear, ask him for help. To draw near when things are hard. If it's, if, if, if it's thinking, oh, I'm really messed up about my salvation practice. I actually think I'm saving myself. I, I want to stop that. God, help me stop that. It, it, it's in that moment, I think, of like, I recognize that this is all I need. What you did here in heaven. So let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. God, I thank you for uh, the the the. Book of Hebrews, God, I thank you for what it's opening up in my life. I thank you what it's opening up in our church's life. And God, that it's not dated at all because your principles are universal. And God, I ask that every single person has this draw near calling in their ear when they walk out today and all throughout the week. Where you are calling us to come near. And God, all the instincts we have to run but God, that we turn to you and we have confidence that we can draw near. And so God, I ask that we take communion in this moment, God, that you just speak to our hearts. Maybe some of us have a revelation of actually the reality of what happened on the cross and salvation and who we are in you. And God, that we, need to stop, that we no longer need to run from you, but we need to run to you. And God, I ask that each person in here feels what those people in Hebrews felt when that letter was finished and read, that they had an opportunity to draw near. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this last song? Feel free to come up anytime and take communion.